Hey there, and welcome back to the People's Tax Pod. I'm your host, David Sorensen, and today I will be hybrid hosting our panel, myself, Vivian, and Phil. At the People's Tax page, we believe that America is plagued by three big issues. First is our growing inequality. Second is the tax system's role in exacerbating this inequality. And the third is how the tax code could be a solution to this problem. Smarter tax policy would ensure that the upper class pays its fair share of taxes, benefiting all Americans. This week, we are discussing the first part, wealth inequality. People criticize wealth inequality as a terrible thing, but there's an even greater need to discuss where the unfairness really comes from. So what is wealth inequality? Inequality is simply that some people have more than others, or conversely, that some people have less than others. This is not inherently the problem. The problem is one of degrees. Our issue isn't that one person earns $100,000 or even a million dollars more than another. It's that there are people who can't afford to feed themselves or their family, while others can afford private chefs. This issue poisons all the wells of society. When some people can't afford health care, it drives up their personal costs later, and we all are the ones who pay for it. When families don't get fed, their children don't grow and can't fulfill their potential. Similarly, if families can't invest in education, then we will not have an educated society. In order to give you an idea of what this inequality really looks like, we are going to cover a couple different realities for Americans. I will be discussing the reality for lower-income families, Phil will be talking about the middle class, and Vivian will be talking about the wealthiest Americans. So the first question is, what do living expenses look like for these families? Well, for lower income families, living expenses are heavily concentrated on immediate needs. You probably can't afford a down payment on a house, for example, so you'll be paying a landlord to rent instead of paying down a mortgage. And you may even be paying a higher amount, you know, than you would have been paying on your mortgage just to get your shelter. Most of your income after that will go towards food and utilities, the stuff that keeps your stomach from growling and keeps your lights on. If you do get to, or need to, if it's a time issue, eat out, it is more likely to be high calorie and low cost food. That is to say, it's more likely to be fast food when you go to a restaurant. In most places, a relatively high proportion of your income will go towards gas, so you can get to and from work or school or wherever else you need to go. It is unlikely that low-income families partake in any kind of preventative health care. That's expensive. This obviously means things like physical exams and dental visits, but it also means things like eating healthy and exercising. The result of this is that a person pays less for health care today with the near guarantee that they will pay more for it tomorrow if they even make it that far. Lower-income individuals also have much shorter life expectancies. As you may guess, All of this works together to make it very difficult for lower income families to start saving and start generating the wealth that will pull them out of poverty. So the cycle usually continues across generations. It is also worth observing that lower income families spend a high proportion of their income, which means that a sales tax or a gas tax hits these families the hardest. Phil, can you tell us about what these living expenses look like for middle income families? Yeah, David. But before I begin about expenses, classifying how much money a middle-class household actually brings in is crucial to understanding the real middle class because it's such a vague area that a lot of people talk about. It's very likely that if you go up to someone on the street and you ask them if they're a middle-class wage earner or just a middle-class citizen, they'll probably say yes. But the truth is, it really depends on where you live. So depending on where you live and that place's consequent price level, the middle class is anywhere between earning 48,000 a year and 140,000 a year in 2018 dollars. 
So if you're living in Jackson, Tennessee, then you only need about $39,000 per year to be in the middle class. But if you're in San Francisco, you need at least $63,000 per year. So what do the living expenses look like for this kind of household? According to Pew Research and the New York Times, the typical costs or expenses of a middle-class household is housing or food, student loans, health insurance or health costs in general, transportation, and childcare in no particular order. Compounded with the cost of tax liabilities, the options of the middle class seem even bleaker. If we take a middle class household with a $70,000 annual income, slightly above the US household median, then under the current federal FICA state and local income taxes, this household must automatically pay at least $11,000 per year, even in low tax states like Florida or Texas, leaving it with $59,000 in take home pay. But the average American household spends over $61,000 per year in expenses, suggesting that it's very hard, if not actually impossible, for the average household to save money and build wealth, let alone cover for all their expenses. So where do these households cut costs? Perhaps the more important way that middle-class families cut costs is by health services. At minor occasions, this means skipping annual checkups but it also has meant that the middle-class individuals have been more likely to face severe medical issues after compounded years of not seeing professional physicians. And depending on circumstances, these health costs can be the sole perpetrator of life-crushing costs in general. Another point of cost-cutting is education. Many middle-class families either choose not to attend higher education or cut their college studies short, but this could leave them with the cost of student loans without the full benefits of a college degree. Vivian, can you tell us about what living expenses look like for, for wealthy Americans? Yeah, absolutely, David. So similar to Phil, I want to start my section by kind of defining what we mean by ultra-rich. You know, when we say ultra-rich, we're using a term that encompasses multiple subcategories, right? So first, you know, high net worth individuals have, you know, one to five million in investable assets. The next tier of sorts is very high net worth individuals who have five to $30 million in assets. And lastly, we have ultra high net worth individuals who have at least 30 million in investable assets. Right? And so now I want to you know, address the question you asked, which was what do living expenses look like? And there's no straightforward answer. You know, first of all, it's difficult to find statistics. And this is you know, most likely because first of all, there's differences between these three categories. And second, you know, living expenses are going to vary wildly depending on spending habits. For instance, some ultra-rich individuals would spend a lot of money on eating out. Others, like Mark Zuckerberg and Warren Buffett, are famously frugal. But beyond the core costs, which Phil has already discussed, I do want to point out two oddities of sorts that tend to be unique to ultra-rich individuals. So first, let's address the topic of residential property. So if you're ultra rich and you own a huge mansion, your housing costs are going to be a lot. They're going to include interest payments, property taxes, homeowners insurance, maintenance, and you know the daily upkeep costs for a hundred million dollar home could be upwards of 15K for instance. And when we're talking about transportation costs, right? So like when Phil is talking about um, how transportation costs are really high for the middle class, for the ultra rich, we're not worried as much as the cost of transportation, but rather the upkeep of you know, the vehicle for transportation, right? The upkeep for a luxury car. 
you know, a change of tires for a luxury car could be, you know, 30K. That's crazy. Um, and similar to a ho the housing deal, you know, we're looking at the cost of car insurance, taxes, servicing, et cetera, et cetera. So there's other costs which are discretionary, paying for a personal chef, for a personal trainer, you know, for other forms of entertainment. This is all to say that ultra-rich individuals have more than enough to live on. It's the amount of their wealth combined with the extent of their spending, which will determine how hard they must work to maintain that lifestyle. And that I would say is the more present concern for them. The second thing we wanna talk about is what a typical education looks like. This is really important because, you know, a lot of times education is considered the engine for success, the engine for prosperity. But what are the decision factors that go into pursuing a higher education for these people? Is there a necessity element, a reputation element? Well, for lower income Americans, it's, it's worth noting that one in five American children are raised in poverty. By law, children are supposed to attend school until they're 16 years old, but after that, the educational opportunities available to children raised in poverty vary wildly. 30% of American children raised in poverty will not finish high school. This problem is not helped by the fact that inadequate nutrition through our pubescent ears can have physical and mental effects that will persist for the rest of our lives. Schools can be a really important source of nutrition for these students who may not have, have nutrition at home, but they're also not the only source. And if students stop attending school, then that source of nutrition obviously goes away. Only 11% of children in lower income families will get a bachelor's degree compared to nearly 60% of the top quintile, the top 20% of earners. And so, you know, we, we ultimately have for lower income earners, most of them finish high school, but the, the vast, vast majority of them never go on beyond that. And so they'll be in competition for jobs that require high school diplomas, or even if they didn't finish high school, they might go back and get a GED, but they'll, they'll never really have a shot at the jobs that require college degrees, whether or not they otherwise have the skills for them. Phil, for a middle-class family, what does the typical education look like? What would be the motivations for pursuing secondary education? It's unclear if more education is even a solution for financial instability among middle-class households. Although levels of education are highly correlated with income, obtaining a bachelor's degree is becoming only necessary rather than sufficient for a decent standard of living. The additional cost of graduate programs are not an easy expenditure for middle-class households. Vivian, what does the educational outlook for wealthy and ultra-wealthy families look like? You know, one option for children of wealthy families is not to go to college at all. Familial connections in certain industries can certainly go a long way. But for most of the rich, higher education, you know, is an assumption. And attending an elite college is just as much a status symbol as it is an avenue for expanding one's mind. These sort of educational disparities are evident at every stage of schooling, right? So an ultra-rich family can afford to send their children to academically rigorous, often private, elementary, middle, and high schools, right? A number of private high schools are feeders into Ivy League colleges and the tuition for those schools at each stage in that child's life, you know, the tuition is going to be on par with what we would pay for college tuition. So it's, it's very expensive. And, you know, once these kids make it to these elite college environments, you know, they might find it easier to adjust, not only because they've experienced similarly competitive environments before, 
but also because they're more likely to have established support networks at those colleges. And these support networks, you know, extend into postgraduate employment settings as well. And so the cycle continues. The last thing we want to talk about when sort of framing these three brackets is what emergency expenses look like. What do emergency expenses look like for a lower income family, for a middle income family, for an upper income family? Well, for a lower income family, in many cases, they just won't have the cash on hand to cover their immediate needs. They, they may be able to cover their food and their rent if they're lucky, but you know, if something unexpected comes up, if the car breaks down or if someone gets, gets very sick or anything like that, they're going to need to rely on payday loans or something similar. In extreme cases, I suppose they would, they would maybe set up a GoFundMe, but I don't, I don't necessarily think that that sort of crowdsourcing of, of expenses has the same effectiveness in lower fa- income families as it does in middle income families. But this means that they're resorting to payday loans or something similar. These types of loans have extremely high interest rates. They're punitive in many ways, which is just another example of how an inability to pay today leads to lots of extra expenses tomorrow, and it only entrenches that need. Ultimately, this sort of entrenchment is is oftentimes referred to as wage slavery because people develop this need to just continue working just so that they can afford to survive. It's not an issue of, of, you know, getting a nicer car or getting a better phone or anything like that. It's an issue of making sure you keep a roof over your head. It's an issue of making sure you have food on your table and, and your car is able to turn on in the morning to drive you to work. It's very much this aggressive growth cycle in which any emergency expenses can completely throw you off and spiral you even further down. Phil, what do emergency expenses look like for middle-class Americans? So emergency expenses, as we talked about, include a lot of medical expenses. But there's also a growth of subprime installment loans, which has been fueled by the middle class, according to the LA Times. Debts are reportedly getting larger and the cost can be devastating to borrowers while creditors risk little. Especially with the phenomenon of COVID, many middle-class households are fleeing from cities and buying houses quickly. They're also often skipping inspections and not performing the due diligence required to buy a home. And turnover of houses has been super high. But these households are still stuck dealing with an installment loan in the event that they want to move out of a recently bought household. Vivian, we've been talking about how hard it can be for the lower and middle classes to suddenly get cash if they need it, you know, in the case of an emergency expense. What does that look like for the upper class, the people who we would expect to have the greatest access to that kind of emergency cash? For the most part, the ultra-rich won't have any trouble paying for emergency medical expenses, even at full cost. Some of the ultra-rich don't even have health insurance. Instead, they'll shell out uh, up to 30K a year for concierge medicine. And this means that they you know, would have the ability to have their own physicians on call you know, wherever. And those who do choose to stay in hospitals can afford luxury hospital rooms, which can include great views, you know, more comfortable beds, um, among other perks. So for a closing question, I want us to talk about our big takeaways from these. What does this all mean? What does this mean for lower-income Americans, middle-income Americans, and wealthy Americans? To start with, for lower-income Americans, I think the big takeaway is that poverty is a cycle. This is the ultimate bane of our inequality. A lack of resources means an inability to plan ahead. 
not by choice, but by fact, which means that families living in poverty can only address needs as they arise, sometimes by taking out loans with punitive interest rates to do so. That means that a family in poverty can do everything right, skipping their avocado toast and lattes as the boomers would advise them, and they will still be trapped in poverty 20 years from today. Furthermore, their children will be unlikely to have access to the education and the resources necessary to break the wheel. The result is that this generation will almost certainly be trapped in poverty for their entire lives, and the next generation, and the next, will as well. And poverty doesn't mean not taking their family to Disney World. It means scrimping on meals or battling homelessness. 20% of American children are raised in poverty. It is a major issue, perhaps the major issue in America, and we must address this issue in a meaningful and compassionate way if we are to consider ourselves a civilized society. Phil, what is your big takeaway for the middle class? Well, I'd say it's hard to sit comfortably in the middle class. From all the factors of middle class expenses, education, and quality of life, it seems there's much more downward pressure on the middle class, forcing them into the lower class, than there is pressure guiding them to the upper class. This is an unstable place to be, and there doesn't appear to be any clear solution for the middle class's instability. Vivian, what would your big takeaways be for wealthy Americans? The big takeaway is that ultra-rich families have a lot of flexibility in how much they choose to spend. The basics are more than affordable. As I mentioned earlier, for ultra-rich families who are big spenders, you know, the bigger question is going to be how much they have to make each year to sustain their affluent lifestyles. And you know, the question of how they preserve wealth via the tax code is something we'll address in an upcoming episode. Thank you to the two of you for these insights on what income looks like in America and what inequality really means. Uh, I hope that our listeners have enjoyed this. I hope you've been able to sort of see where the fundamental problem with inequality comes from and our motivations for wanting to fix it, for wanting to understand this issue better and come up with solutions that benefit not just, you know, one part of our society, but all of society. To our listeners, We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thank you for tuning in to Vivian and Phil. Thank you so much for joining me. If you want to subscribe to our newsletter or donate, you can do so at peoplestaxpage.org. If you want to follow us on Facebook and Twitter, you can do so at People's Tax Page. And if you want to rate or subscribe to this podcast, you can do so by following the People's Tax Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for tuning in. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you next week.